there was an era that I will call pre-COVID. And in those days on Sunday nights, you may recall, we were meeting in the, that room, uh, parlor, thank you. And we're in here now, but I'm going back to where we were, and I know everyone had committed it to memory. Now, I don't have, okay, good question. I don't have the chapter up there, so what chapter did we get to? Well, bless God in heaven. Y'all, y'all, y'all get the peppermint sticks, okay. How about that? I, I'm, I know it, I'm, I'm, I may faint here in a minute. So we're in the Exodus 36. It's, uh, it's, it, it takes a lot of thought to think about how when we read something like this, this part that we're in in Exodus, you know, it's exciting. Moses at the burning bush. Moses killed an Egyptian guy and he ran and he was 40 years and but when, but when the Lord has him and is telling him how he wants the tabernacle built and gives him all of these details, some people find it challenging to stay awake reading through these parts. But we're going to extract some things, hopefully, between now and Exodus, at the end of Exodus 40, which will take us through Exodus, that will give us some thought about our service to the Lord and about His love for us and about His desire to make His presence known to His people. Most of this chapter is the accomplishment of what Moses was told to do in Exodus 26. So in Exodus 26, the Lord said to Moses, you will take this kind of material and you will make this and you'll make it this long and this wide and you will take this material and you'll do this. Now we're to the part where it says, they took the material and they did this and that is, it's almost the same. It's in some cases, it's in summary fashion here in uh, Exodus 36. But the thought that's behind Exodus is the Lord bringing his people to himself and revealing himself to his people. He chooses to do that by the tabernacle that he gives instruction uh, to Moses for its building, for its construction. Of course, it's, it's a tabernacle. That means that it's uh, mobile. They're on their way somewhere. And so it has to be mobile, easily taken down and easily put back up. Now, the Lord takes personal attention to the accomplishment of the work that he has commanded. Isn't that great? 
God just does it all. He just assumes all of this responsibility. Here were two guys who grew up learning stuff and they did stuff and they built stuff and did not realize that God had given them and had built this wisdom and this knowledge into them as, as they grew into men. And now this will be their, what God had gifted them with, their knowledge of, of, of building and, and so forth, is going to be used in service to the Lord. That's just the way the, the Lord does it. I'm reminded of a story. I can't remember the details, but it was back in the it was back in the middle to late 1800s. It was in the Spurgeon era, and you know, Britain, the sun never set on the empire and all that kind of stuff. They had a great navy, and uh, there was there was an old saying back then when a man had a brilliant son. He placed him in Her Majesty's Navy. When he had a son that wasn't quite as bright as that one, he placed him in Her Majesty's Army. And when he had a son who was altogether dull, he placed him in the ministry. So, uh, so these guys had a place of service according to their brightness, I guess. But the story, and I can't remember, it was about a missionary that we would all know. I can't remember his name now. He went to school early with a man who became his friend in, in childhood and, and in, in early years before they became men. And as the story goes, they both were from London. One of the men was guided by God into missionary work on the continent of Africa. The other was guided into the Navy, Her Majesty's Navy. And he became the commander of a very large ship in the Navy. Decades passed, and it happened that the missionary had been given a lot of goods that people had known he needed for mission work in Africa. But in the middle 1800s, Africa was not an easy place to get to from London. He'd prayed about it. He was concerned about it. And he was at a, sitting at a table having his tea on a sidewalk restaurant in London when his childhood friend, whom he hadn't seen for decades, came and sat nearby and had his tea and they noticed each other and recognized each other from childhood. And so they caught up with each other. Well, what, you know, 
What kind of family? What, where have the years carried you? And so he asked, the, the, the naval commander asked the missionary. He said, uh, how is your work going? He said, well, I'm, I'm stuck. By the grace of God, we raised all of these goods that are desperately needed in Africa. And I, I need to get them there, and I, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And so his friend said, his former friend, he said, well, it so happens that I'm the commander of a very large ship. And it so happens that we're about to disembark to Africa. And it so happens that we don't have very much cargo on this particular trip. You are welcome, free of charge, to put all of these goods on my ship. And we will take you and your goods to wherever you need to have it taken in Africa. A friendship started in childhood between two little boys that was refreshed in a time when they both were men and both were men in their particular fields of importance. They had great work to do. And just as God would have it, just at that time, just at tea time, just at that particular restaurant, those two men crossed paths again. And the Lord, the, the naval officer was to be, could be used, was used by the Lord to assist the missionary in his ministry to carry all of these things, uh, these goods to Africa. And it, it, it went smoothly. And of course, the missionary was so thankful for, uh, for what the Lord did through the naval commander back in those days. God is sovereign. He has a plan. We talked about it this morning looking at Ephesians. Every detail has already been worked out in the mind of God and God has his purpose and by the power of Almighty God, he's working his plan out to his glory so that at the end of all things and the beginning of new things, all will be to the praise of his glory. Remember what it said and what we read this morning uh, the glory of grace, how God just graciously moves. And so when I, when I read about these two guys here, I thought, you know, in the world, though Pharaoh may not recognize it, the, the queen or king of Ethiopia would not recognize it, would not even know what was going on here. And yet this is a part of the most important work in the world because it is God interacting with his chosen people, Israel. He was interacting with them so that by his presence in the tabernacle and because of the way the tabernacle was to be built and outfitted and measured and so forth, his people would have an illustration 
of God's care and God's love and God's holiness every time they just looked at the tabernacle, much less go into it and offer sacrifice and come before the Lord in those special days and times and feasts and festivals and so forth. So it starts out with two guys, otherwise unknown, but God knows them. Bezalel and Ahliyev. And every wise-hearted man into whom Yahweh had imbued wisdom and insight to know how to do, how to do things, shall do all the work of the service of the hachlish, the holy, the holy place, according to all that Yahweh has commanded. Moses called Bezalel and Ahaliab. And every wise-hearted man into whose heart Yahweh had given wisdom. Notice this. Into whose heart Yahweh had given wisdom. This statement permeates all of every era of human life. Gideon, for example, he was a skittish kind of a fellow. He wasn't the he wasn't the bravest guy, and yet God chose him to lead a diminished number of soldiers against a greater company of of the enemy. He and a friend they were sneaking around, getting, gathering some intel on on the enemy. And uh, did I do something? I have just taken a vacation. Huh. Did I do that? Okay. So they sneak and they get to within to where they can hear some of the soldiers talking. And Gideon overhears a conversation. Just at that moment in time... These two guys, the enemy, are going to have a conversation about Gideon. Just when Gideon could hear it. And they were talking about the fear among their people, their soldiers, because of Gideon. And that really, you know, that really bolstered Gideon. He needed that just, just then. Just, just then. It happened. Just then. And I could give you a hundred other illustrations or more from the scriptures about how God moved. How many, how many lives and how many situations were affected in the development of these men to get them to this point? How many families, how many people were affected? And God took care of all of it. And here they were. God, Yahweh had imbued wisdom and insight to know how to do. Shall do all the work of the service of the Kaddish, the, the holy sanctuary. According to all that Yahweh has commanded. 
Now you go back to chapter 26, and Yahweh had commanded, you're going to build one of the most durable and beautiful mobile, mobile structures that the world has ever seen. And he tells him, you're going to use silver. You're going to use copper. You're going to use gold. You're going to use this kind of skin. And you're going to use this kind of thread. And you're going to put it all together. And you're going to make these colors. And you're going to have the cherubim. The images of the cherubim extended over the lid of the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And it'll be a certain kind of wood, but then you'll cover it with gold. And it'll have to be this kind of measure. And you'll have these lampstands and you'll have this, you'll have that. All of this stuff be just, just right. And it all will have a particular meaning. And then you'll have to have a a certain kind of an altar and then all of these and another altar inside. How do you think Moses, Moses, okay, Moses was an administrative kind of a guy. Moses, according to Josephus, had been the top military commander of Pharaoh's army before Moses finally surrendered into the truth that he was a Hebrew, that he was an Israelite. So Moses had all this background and Moses put the people when they began to walk across and march across uh, the wilderness, the desert, three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, tabernacle in the middle, and so they were defensive. They could defend themselves on either side and they could march as a unit this way or this way or back this way or over this way. They could march as a unit that way. And according to Josephus, Moses actually learned that as a military commander in Egypt. So if indeed that's the way it was, Moses, without even realizing it, in the household of Pharaoh, was being taught things and he was being instructed in ways that would be used in service to the Lord. So were these guys, not just them, but the other ones who are mentioned as well. Every wise-hearted man into whom Yahweh had imbued wisdom and insight to know how to do. I've told you this many times. My daddy used to have a saying, God don't never make a bill, but what he's going to pay for it. God placed his order in Exodus back over at 26. And he, he's going to pay for it. God always knew God of course, never makes a mistake. He never falls short. He's never confused. He's God. He doesn't really need us. But by his grace, he uses us and calls us to himself. And we're blessed because of it. Here, these guys, they're blessed because they shall do the work of the service. The service of Yahweh. Moses called, he called them all, every wise-hearted man into whose heart Yahweh had given wisdom, everyone whose heart lifted him up to approach the work to do it. 
God specifically had these men prepared in all of their lives to do this specific work because this is where Yahweh would meet his people. This is where his people would come to Yahweh. They would have their sins forgiven. God would extend mercy. God would graciously make his presence known. He provided for them the priesthood. There was intercession in behalf of the people. There was service by the priesthood in behalf of the people. And in the priesthood, God met man. Man met God. And the people had forgiveness of sins and ideally were to lead a beautiful life of worship and service to the Lord. The center of it here is the tabernacle. God plans every aspect of it. It was given to us back over in chapter 26, verse 3. So they took from before Moses all of the offerings that the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of the Hachadosh. So they're going to start on the inside and work to the out. And they brought him more gifts every morning than all the wise men who were doing the work of the Hakadosh came, each one from his work, which they had been doing. So everybody, all of these men had, a, had specific tasks for which God had prepared them. Now they're going to have to put precious metal, costly uh, material into this tabernacle. Now these people, not too many, not, not, not too long before this, they were just slaves. But after the plagues and Pharaoh said to the children of Israel, get out of here. There was a thing added to that so that the Israelites, even the Egyptians, and we read this, you may remember, the Egyptians were all saying, just get out of here. Take my gold and my good stuff. Take my precious garments and everything. Just take it. Take it. Get, get out. It's not like the Israelites held them up on it. It's that the Egyptians were so anxious to get rid of the Israelites, they just wanted to pay them to get out of the way. So they gave them all of their precious possessions, which included gold and silver and jewels. And it included special material that people used to, to, make, their, uh, to make their homes and to decorate their homes and to make their clothes. Take it all. God was already preparing for the cost of his tabernacle when they were leaving Egypt. God has a plan. He has it worked out. Just because I can't see it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan. And God is under no obligation to reveal that plan to me. I'm just supposed to have faith. I walk in faith and I know that God is already in tomorrow while I'm just still walking through today. So they were doing the work, each one his work, which they'd been doing according to the plan of God. And next. I'm I messed up here somehow. There it is. They spoke to Moses. Now I love this part. I'm not sure you'll ever hear me say this. The people are bringing very much 
As a matter of fact, the people are giving too much. <laughs> that would a great thing, wouldn't it? The people are bringing very much more than is enough for the labor of the articles which Yahweh had commanded to do. We already have enough gold to make the things that we're supposed to make out of gold. We already have enough silver. We have more than enough. We already have the material that we're supposed to use to weave and to make the curtains and, and the outer hangings of the tabernacle. We have all of this. So Moses commanded and they announced in the camp saying, let no man or woman do any more work for the offering for the hachlish. So the people stopped bringing. And the work was sufficient for them for all the work to do it and to have leftovers. Isn't that nice? Here's the point. God overprovided. He overprovided. Now, in some way, if, if Moses had, had allowed these guys to keep accepting the gifts, just like manna, it would have been spoiled. Some, something would have spoiled it. So Moses makes the announcement, don't bring anything else. We have plenty to do the work that we're supposed to do. Man, this is God. Now, you understand God has been working this out for a long time in the lives of people. And now it just happens as, as part of the circumstances in the daily life of Israel along the way, moving from Egypt to Canaan, the promised land. Oh, by the way, we have more than enough. This is what God told us to do. God has given wisdom to men, they're the greatest craftsmen in the world. This is the greatest work in the world. Now, you won't find that in a history book other than what we read in the Bible. Because it meant nothing to the world, but this is something between God and his people. And the work was sufficient for them, for all the work, to do it and have leftovers. I'm going to read just right through this because this is a summary from now to the end of the chapter. It is a summary of what God had detailed back in chapter 26, what God had detailed for the work. So here's, here's a sort of a moving summary of the work to show that it was done. All the wise-hearted people of the performers of the work made the mishkan out of ten curtains uh, consisting of twisted fine, that's the Michigan, that's the, like the tabernacle, a fine linen, blue, purple, crimson wool, a cherubim design, the work of a master weaver. He made them. The length of one curtain was 28 cubits. The width of one curtain was four cubits. The same measure for all the curtains. He joined five of these curtains to one another and the other five curtains he also joined to one another. He made loops of blue wool on the edge of one curtain that is at the edge of the first set and he did the same on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. 50 loops on the edge of one curtain, 50 loops on the edge of the curtain in the second set. Loops corresponded to one another, made 50 golden clasps. He fastened the curtains to one another with the clasps so the Michigan became one. It's just one beautiful tabernacle. 
Now, this is greatly detailed for the sake of God's mobile people to receive his blessing, to have his presence, his, his forgiveness, atone, all, all of the things that they would offer and give and receive. So now, curtains, goat hair for a tent over the Michigan. He made them 11 curtains, length of one curtain, 30 cubits. The width was four cubits, the same measure for 11 curtains. Joined the five curtains by themselves, the other six curtains by themselves. 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. Made 50 copper clasps to fasten the tent together so that it became one. Made a covering for the tent of ramskins dyed red and a covering of tachash. We don't really know what that is. Porpoise, I don't know, they're different translations for it but it was good whatever it was and he made the planks for the Michigan of acacia wood upright 10 cubits the length of each plank cubit and a half the width of each plank each plank had two square pegs rung like one even with the other so did he make for all the planks of the Michigan and he made the planks for the Michigan 20 planks southern side 40 silver sockets 20 planks Two sockets under one plank, two square for the two square pegs, two sockets under one plank for two square pegs. And for the second side of the Michigan on the northern side, so now we got the other side, 20 planks, and it follows the same pattern 40 silver sockets, two sockets under one plank, two sockets under one plank. For the western end, six planks, two planks at the corners of the Michigan at the end, matched evenly from below, and together they matched at its top to be put into the one ring. So did he make for both of them for the two corners and there were eight planks, their silver sockets, 16 sockets, two sockets under uh, one plank and two sockets under one plank. And he made bars of acacia wood, five for the planks on one side of the Michigan, five bars for the planks the second side of the Michigan, five bars for the planks at the end of the rear side of the Michigan on the westward end, made the middle bar to penetrate in the midst of the planks from one end to the other, Overlaid the planks with gold, their rings he made of gold as holders for the bars, and he overlaid the bars with gold. And he made the dividing curtain of blue, purple, crimson wool, twisted fine linen, work of a master weaver, he made it into a woven cherubim design. And he made it for four, he made it four, uh, he made for it four pillars of acacia wood, and he overlaid them with gold, their hooks were gold and he cast for them four silver sockets. He made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue, purple, crimson wool and the twisted fine linen, the work of an embroiderer. And it's five pillars and their hooks and he overlaid their tops and their bands with gold and their five sockets were copper. Now I just rushed through that because we've already covered that and we already covered the meaning of the colors and the meaning of the material that was used. All of it had a meaning. Everything spoke of the love of God through Christ to us, the ministry of Christ, the person of Christ, the glory of God's nature as he chooses to reveal himself to us in this case in the tabernacle. So there was a great lesson to be learned every time worshipers went into the, went into the outer court area and there offered their offerings and the the priesthood was to teach them 
the beauty and the glory of the things on the inside of the holy and then the holy of holies and give to them the message of the glory and beauty and love of God for his people. We saw here where there was an embroiderer, there was, there was a weaver. People, people were goldsmiths and silversmiths. And those who embroidered put together these be beautiful colors in just the right way as they were instructed and, and everything is against the backdrop of something that is even more glorious and beautiful. And the copper and the silver and the gold speak of the, of the, sin, of the sin of man, the redemption of Christ and the presence of God. And you move from bronze or brass, you move from that all the way to gold. And in there was the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant Encased within the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, which man could never obey. Someone had to keep it for us. Placed inside acacia wood, which spoke of humanity. Covered in gold, which spoke of deity. On which was spilled, on top of the mercy seat, the, the, the blood of atonement. In the shadow of the wings of the cherubim who were seen in the scriptures as nearest to the Son of God and bearing up his throne and moving according to the will of the Holy Spirit. Read about that in, in Ezekiel. And all of that had meaning. Christ, God who became a man, was the keeper of the law. We can't keep it. He keeps it for us. And blood is spilled in our behalf and sprinkled on the mercy seat. It was in the verb form where the tax collector in the New Testament cried out, be mercy seated to me, the sinner. So whenever a worshiper came in and then on the day of atonement, of course, the high priest would offer the sacrifice, the atoning blood, the cleansing of the people. The glory and splendor of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the ministry of, 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 of the Christ of God who would move, man moves, the copper moves from manhood to where finally we're in the presence of God and then the opposite is true where the presence of God moves outward to where man is. And all of this was a, was a message every time the people went in to worship, even the carrying of the tabernacle. In his mobile state, one only had to look and think of the great lessons. Now, how many people had served Yahweh to put that thing together? How many people were, were gifted by the Lord in the development of their lives so that they could be brought to service here? The tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle, of course, is patterned after the, after the real temple, which is in heaven. The tabernacle, after the people are in the land, becomes the temple, which Solomon was permitted to build by the Lord 
um, when Solomon was king. And for the elect of God to the time of Christ, the temple, the ministry provided in the temple, extremely important for the spiritual lives of God's people, where God would meet his people, where his people would come into the presence of God, and God and man came together. Now, we don't need that because of Christ. All of those things were just lessons of Christ. Hundreds and hundreds of years of lessons. One, one, one Bible scholar said that the tabernacle and later the temple was just a coloring book for God's people. In other words, I don't know if they still do it this, these days or not, but when I was a kid, you'd get a thing to color. If you're studying the letter B, it was a ball or a balloon or a bimbo or something. I don't know. Maybe not that. Maybe just a ball or a balloon. <laughs> Bad choice of words. But that wasn't in God's coloring book. <laughs> this other stuff was. So it was, a, it was beautiful imagery that would stay in the mind of a person to remind him of the presence of God, the love of God, the salvation of God, the atoning sacrifice made in his behalf by the command of God. This is what we get out of this portion of the scripture. The details of God's love in making his presence known and available to his people and calling and drawing his people to himself, first having to acknowledge the sin, making a sin offering at the brazen altar when they come in. A burnt offering then, after the sin offering, because now that I've acknowledged sin and I've made a sin offering, the burnt offering would be flayed. It would be sliced in every way and no part of the inward the inward side of a sacrifice would be hidden from Yahweh. This is me. Nothing is hidden. And you burn it up and let it go into the presence of God as to who you really wanted to be. Now that you're saved, you want, you want to be a servant. You don't want anything hidden from God. And then it goes on from there. All of these details, but it starts with servants who are prepared by God using the resources that God has provided to accomplish God's purpose in displaying His love and grace and mercy to His own people. Well, we'll stop it there and have a word of prayer. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for the details that you've worked out in our lives and through all of eternity that you've taken the responsibility and all of the work that you might save us and bring us into your presence. God, help us tell others about Christ who has come to us to save us from our sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.